Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. I am the Ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge the season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Joining us now is Blockhead Jack Dorsey. That's the title he himself requested. Jack, we really appreciate you joining us. Thank you. Appreciate you both. Thank you for having me. Yeah, Absolutely. super grateful. Jack, uh, you've been uh, outspoken recently. Uh, why do you think that RFK Jr. is the best choice for the Democratic knee and the best, the Democratic nominee and the best candidate in the field right now? Um, first and foremost, uh, to have a candidate to be president of the United States that is focused on peace and ending uh, all these wars and really focusing on looking at some of the deeper issues that we've we've had, especially as he states around regulatory capture, um, the military industrial complex. He has intimate knowledge of all these things. He's you know worked uh, extremely hard and tiresome in, in these fields and made a lot of progress. I've, I you know I came across him um, this year and I, I really listened and I kind of went through all of his podcasts uh, almost every episode and I appreciate how much of a grasp he has of all the issues he speaks to. I appreciate that he's curious and I appreciate that he comes at everything from a more of a humanitarian angle. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a deep, deep sense of humanity and actually helping people. And there's an edge as well. There's, there's, you know, no, no fear in exploring topics that are a little bit controversial and, and maybe in the future. Um, so in all in all, just absolutely refreshing from, from what I've seen from the, the whole field. And I'm not really usually in, uh, I, I don't, you know, really speak out much on who I'm choosing or, or why. Um, but I don't know. I just feel like our country, uh, needs his leadership. And do you think it would be important for the Democratic Party to host primary debates so that um, voters have a chance to view all of these candidates and their alternatives? Absolutely. I, I, it just it would be silly to not have open debates, to not have open primaries, because it feels like um, hiding or everything that is everything is planned and and you know already determined, and 
I don't think that builds trust. And right now we need to build as much trust as, as possible, open up and be as transparent as possible, um, and really let the people see and decide for themselves. Mm -hmm. You know, Jack, you know, speaking of uh, openness, of transparency so far, we haven't had a chance to really hear from you much in really the recent years and especially the last several months. What do you make so far of uh, Elon Musk's uh, CEO takeover of Twitter, your former company? I think this is actually the first interview I've done since I left the company, maybe, mm -hmm. maybe longer. Um, well, as, as I've said, um, Twitter was going to have a very, very hard time continuing to be a public company. It had many pressures upon it. Um, the advertising business we were entirely dependent upon, and not just uh, advertising um, as you might think of it from Facebook or Instagram or Snapchat. It was brand advertising. It was dependent upon huge brands or a collection or conglomerates of brands uh, seeing us as something that they wanted to spend money on. Mm. Um, and because we were so small relative to our peers, if anything happened in the market or with them, they would instantly pull away from us. Uh, Snapchat was included in that bucket as well. Um, and they would retreat to the larger ones like Facebook and Google. Um, because we were a public company without any protections, uh, we had no dual class uh, voting setup. We were open to activists coming in. In fact, we had an activist coming into our stock. It's hugely distracting. Uh, and really, really challenging to build anything at all. And and to actually build something that you have to take some risk upon um, because you have the pressure from these advertisers and uh, and all this revenue suddenly going away if you, if you make a decision they don't like. Right. And at the same time, if that happens, then, you know, the, the stock has an issue and activist comes in and it's a death spiral. So the only path to me was to take the company private and I, you know, Elon is uh, our number one user. He's our number one customer. Um, he understood the platform deeply and he's a technologist and he builds technology. So at the very start, I was hoping for years that he would, um, and I asked him many times to join our board at least. Um, but when he decided to make a bid for the company or join the board and then make a bid for the company, uh, I was, um, it just, it felt great. Um, but as you all remember, that's the time when the market crashed, especially for advertising companies like ours. So if we sure. not get that, um, I, I think it would have been very, very challenging for Twitter to, to live uh, right mm -hmm. now. So uh, what happened, unfortunately, after that, after the, the bid made, the bid was made and, and, the, and the market went down is, you know, he wanted to back away. He did have a option to back away uh, at a billion dollars and just walk away. Um, but there was this fight about bots and, you know, the company took him to court when he when he backed out. And that's when things really went south. Um, fortunately, you know, he decided to make it, but I think it set up a, 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 a dynamic where he had to be very hasty. He had to be um, impatient. He had to move as quickly as possible with features, even if they weren't fully thought out hmm. and mm -hmm. it all looked fairly reckless, but I, I do have confidence that he'll figure it out. Um, I do have confidence, uh, in his new CEO. Um, and I own, you know, 3% of this, of this new company. So I'm, I'm supportive. I have questions about 
you know, certain things. And I have questions about the long-term aspects of free speech on a corporate-owned platform, no matter who the owner is. Yeah. Um, but uh, but those are solvable. Speak speak to that piece first, specifically with regard to Elon. Do you think he's lived up to his own free speech commitments on the platform? And then, what do you see as the tensions between a free speech commitment and a for-profit company? Uh, well, I, it depends on um, where you want the free speech because we we were more you know ideally going for a global appreciation of free speech. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and and free expression itself. And Elon um, took on a principle of anything that's um, allowed by law on the platform, which sets up a dynamic where you have countries like India and Turkey uh, who made many requests to us back in the day um, to take down particular journalist accounts or uh, give contact information um, and remove them from the platform. So. I think it's easier to do in the US, but at the same time, you are dependent right now upon a advertising model and the advertisers can do things like boycott uh, mm -hmm. until policies are changed or, or actions are, are taken. And we saw that many, many, like, well, almost every year I was at the company, we saw that. Hmm. Um, so my, my one goal before I left the company was to shift away from this dependency on brand advertising and move to um, different lines of revenue and Elon has started with that. And I think that will help the cause of, of being a platform for truly free speech. But that said, he can always be compelled. He has one person, he's one single point of failure and pressure can be put upon him by the United States, by the Department of Defense, by China, by Turkey, um, by India, of course, uh, and it will. And um, this is this is going to be the, the the reality for any uh, centrally controlled um, uh, company, or right. or even a protocol that's that's centrally controlled. So the only way to truly have free speech, to truly be censorship resistant, is to work on open protocols. And there are only two at scale that I'm aware of, which is Bitcoin for money, and Noster for um, for social media and and beyond. But they're so niche right now, and they're so small. And to me, it, it just it just says at the moment that people don't actually care as much about the censorship resistance. Otherwise, they would be using these technologies more. And maybe there's not much of a need just yet. Or and and certainly the accessibility and the approachability of these systems is rather arcane for all people in the world. But that will that will change. So. I think we'll see how important censorship resistance truly is to people, um, you know, when some of these issues come up in the future. And it's no fault of Elon, no fault of anyone uh, at at the top of one of these companies. It's just impossible to avoid not having to take actions when there's a particular uh, entity, be it a government or your customers, um, uh, requesting that you do something or they leave. Right. Jack, one of the things that a lot of people focused on are the Twitter files. Do you think that that accurately reflected decision making, so what that's was taking place, you know, at the company around so many of these sensitive topics? And what's your reflection on that, you know, since their release? Uh, I, I wish that the the full corpus of the emails and all the information was released, um, so that more journalists and everyone in the world could see everything. Because I think there is some context missing when you mm. when you. Parts, 
And it's no fault of the reporters necessarily. They had a, a tool and they had to ask questions of the tool. And that tool would give them back fragments of information. Um, and that might lead them to get the other fragment to provide more context. But if, if everything was available, um, I, I think we'd have a better picture. Mm. I, I think the company, you know, my, my leadership style in the company was just to trust our, our folks and, and that they were doing the right things. There's a lot of stuff in the Twitter files that, you know, I never saw um, because it, it wasn't at that level. Mm. Um, and I was surprised by the level of engagement with um, government agencies. I was surprised by the request. But if you look at that, our, our people, um, our, our team members, like they, they push back on a lot of that stuff. Um, not all of it, but a lot of it was was questionable. So I think it shows a company that is struggling. You know, it, it, it remains the most important um, public square in the world right now. Um, and it was so challenging <laughs> to work in that environment. We were, under, <laughs> we were under a microscope from day one of the company and um, it creates stresses that uh, are just unbelievable. Um, but I, I, think, I think they acted with fairness. I, I think they generally did the right thing. Of course, we made a bunch of mistakes, especially around uh, the New York Post and, and the Hunter Biden laptop story. But I, I believe they're good people and that they were doing the best they could with the information that they had. And mm -hmm. um, I wish, in retrospect, I was a little bit more hands-on in that mm -hmm. area. My yeah. focus was on, like when, when I came into the company, we were losing users. And I, my focus was just to grow the company again, um, grow the usage base, grow the revenue. And we did. We, we actually became a profitable company. We uh, got onto the S&P 500. Um, we had, you know, $5 billion a year uh, in advertising revenue, and we were shifting away from advertising at the same time and growing. So I, I didn't focus on that area as much as I probably should have in retrospect and ask more questions. Um, it was all reactive when I did, mm -hmm. but um, yeah, it's a, it's a tough situation, but I, I think, I think the company did well, um, but certainly uh, we could have done better. And I do believe that we, we were more fair and more introspective than our peers. In terms of context, um, you said you felt that some of the context was missing. Do you have specifics there of things that you wish were included or that you felt painted a misleading portrait? Uh, nothing in particular that comes to mind. I mean, like it, it just, it, it's hard to, um, there, there's just so much uh, context in those, in those emails and the communications. And even within that, we would have in-person meetings that would discuss things that may not be represented in the written communication. Mm. So there's nothing that like stands out, but I believe like if you truly want to show how one of these systems work, which I, I'm fully supportive of opening all this stuff up. We were trying to like figure out how to do that ourselves um, before I left. Uh, and, and, and one of my goals is to be the most transparent company in the world, but to only give access to a few people, with a tool that, you know, takes these fragments. Um, I think that there could have been a better approach and, and that would just be open, open up the whole thing. 
Jack, one of the things, you're in a unique position. You believe in free speech. I, that's something I've never doubted um, about you. How, you also are in the unique position of having run one of these companies. Can you give us some like, anecdotes, as you alluded to, foreign governments and the pressures that you were under, if able, just to give the audience an idea of what it is really like to be in a position to have some of the most powerful people literally on earth coming to you and saying, demanding things of your company and as someone with principles, how did you navigate that? Uh, India, for example. India is a, is a country that um, had many requests of us around the farmers' protest, around particular journalists that were critical of the government. Um, and uh, uh, it manifested in ways such as we will shut Twitter down in India, which is a very large market for us. Uh, we will raid the homes of your employees, which they did. Um, we will shut down your offices. Um, if you don't follow suit, and this is India, a democratic country. Um, Turkey is is very similar. Like we we had so many uh, requests from Turkey. We fought Turkey uh, in their in their courts and often won, but they threatened to shut us down constantly. Um, Nigeria, yet another one. Um, I don't think we could even put people on the ground because of what the government might do to our employees if we had them there. Hmm. Uh, and then, of course, the 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 U.S. Um, we we started a long time ago a transparency report about all government requests into us, and we're continuing to make it more fine grain. Um, and these were requests of uh, takedowns or investigations or uh, any any number of things that a government would request of us, especially the U.S. government. And um, I would I would I wasn't as deep. Uh, in in those conversations, but I would say that um, it it was just it was it was super it it feels super challenging because you have the U.S. government asking you things, and then yeah. when asking you to do things, and then also calling you to Congress. And I was I, I was I testified before Congress four times um, for you know five to seven hours each time with the most um, non-productive discussion, you know, these frame questions of yes or no, uh, uh, with, you know, with the ability to provide no context whatsoever so that the Congress people and the senators could actually understand and again, have context for the problems we're trying to solve and, and use it as a form for ideas to, you know, um, to do this for, together for the people of the United States and for the people of these other countries. But it, it just felt like, um, attacks all the time uh, mm. from every angle. Everything we did really upset the right and everything we did really upset the left. Like you, you could not, there's no way to, to win and you just kind of have to internalize that and move forward. You referred earlier to the fact that there hasn't been a large adoption of some of the Twitter alternatives and you said that calls into question how much people actually care about these questions of censorship. I view it a little bit differently, which is that it seems to me that these platforms are kind of like the definition of a natural monopoly, right? The reason people are staying on Twitter is because people are on Twitter, right? There's a, already this critical mass of individuals there. So given the fact that, first of all, I'd be curious if you agree with that assessment that there's sort of natural monopolies because the value comes in having the sizable social network. Should they be regulated then more like public utilities, which is the other sort of famous example of a natural monopoly? Uh, I, I think natural monopolies happen for a time, but they're easily disrupted 
I, I don't think it's as challenging as, as one would think. I mean, Twitter has only been around for uh, 17 years, um, which, which seems like a long time, but there was a, you know, a MySpace before that and a Friendster before that and a Usenet before that, which was completely decentralized and unknown by, by anyone. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, don't, I don't think more government regulation is necessarily the right answer um, to ward off uh, the monopoly aspects or fix some of the issues. Mm -hmm. I think having a having an open protocol that no one actually owns, um, and governments and corporations can't bend to their will, is the most important thing uh, that allows for um, the most creative solutions to all the problems we see, including protecting freedom of speech, and including providing safety for folks who 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 want it. Um, and my hope is that you know as we build these technologies like like Nostra and Bitcoin that a company like Twitter adopts them because it removes a bunch of the liability they would have otherwise. And they can build ph phenomenal businesses on top of it. And to prove that, you see what Google has done with the web. They used an open protocol, built a phenomenal business. They built a phenomenal business on Gmail, which is an open protocol for email. Um, there are real uh, opportunities building on open protocols where the where at the same time, the foundational aspect of it, the foundational layer that people own and the a company can't bend towards its will one way or the other. Jack, what do you think about AI regulation? You're a technologist. Do you think we should have regulation? Do you agree with uh, Elon and others who want to shut it down in the meantime to regulate it? It gets to some of the protocol discussion you're talking about right now. I don't uh, believe pausing AI is uh, realistic. We may pause it here in the U.S., but um, they're not going to pause it in China. Mm -hmm. And I, I think there is a bit of an arms race uh, in this space. Um, I, I think regulation is needed. I don't think the, um, the regulators currently have an understanding of the approach. I'm hoping that they look more at the primitives of these technologies and, and not focused on driving particular outcomes of the technologies. Mm. Um, and I, I think the real, the most important thing to me is that we have open source models and I'm, you know, I've, I've critiqued Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg for, uh, most of my career, my career and he's critiqued us, <laughs> but I really respect the fact that he chose to open source, um, his large language model and that it created this entire, uh, open source ecosystem, building models that are now approaching the level of a chat GPT and what Google is doing with Bard. I think that is absolutely critical that we all have access to these technologies and people can build on top of it and we can actually see how they work. So I think that's far more important than regulation. Um, there's some dangers there uh, that people, you know, might take these technologies and, and build extremely harmful things. Um, but that, that's been the case forever in open source and, and we just haven't seen that play out because there is a balancing effect um, of, of people doing the right thing and, and, and looking at ways to protect the overall technology and, and ultimately protect humanity. So I, I, I think that um, the open source aspect has, has me the most excited about this. You have a lot of respected technologists who've been sounding the alarm about the potential dire impact of AI technology on society. Do you share any of those concerns? Of course I, I share them. I think there's a lot of hype in AI right now. Our, the technology industry is very trendy and we move from one fashion to the next fashion. And mm -hmm. just six months ago, 
no, nine months ago, we were only talking about crypto and board apes. And now all that's gone away, and we're talking about AI and how it's going to destroy us. Like, if you listen to the earnings calls uh, of all these companies uh, six months ago, there was no mention of AI. And now every single earnings call of all, almost all public companies includes a mention of AI. And some of that, I think, is, you know, to pump the stock a bit. Some of uh, the, all the dire stuff is it makes for a good headline, uh, which sells advertising uh, and, and helps uh, the media immensely. Mm. I, I don't think we're anywhere near um, the danger point, um, but certainly like it is important for us to consider the, you know, the potential harmful outcomes uh, and have conversations about them. But I think the only way to do that is to really build it in the technology itself. Right. Um, and, and that's why I think open source is, is so critical. Jack, what do you make of uh, Meta's, you know, foray into the headsets? We just had the release of the Apple headset, this type of technological advancement. Uh, what do you think about AR, VR, and the current push by these companies into it? I mean, it's obvious that it's going to happen. Like, if you if you want to understand the future of any technology, just read science fiction. They're, they're actually the roadmap writers. And it's obvious that, um, like, Snow Crash, uh, this book from Neil Stevenson, is going to happen for yes. one. Like... Now that we've seen it in a movie, like people want to build it, and I, I, I think they they've uh, you know propensity to be phenomenal for for gaming. Um, I think it's an obvious uh, user interface evolution. I'm super worried and concerned with uh, um, how out of touch it might make people and how it distances us even further. Mm. I think it, it another movie. Uh, Wally by by Pixar. That's the future we're driving towards. Um, with everyone in the floating chairs, you know, drinking their food out of straws and and uh, you know, constant twenty four seven entertainment. And you can see that like the whole world is headed this way. And I I I, I want to believe that there's a different answer. Um, so I don't know. I'm I'm. It it's going to happen. I'm I'm skeptical about. Um, some of the, the benefits, and I, I hope we have an honest conversation about some of the harms uh, around more and more social distancing. I think there's been a huge increase both in research about harms of too much technology, especially on young children and teenagers. I think there's been huge interest from the public in how do we make sure that we still have you know health that we're touching grass, so to speak. Um, and I wonder, Jack, how you think about those things, you know, advice to parents, advice to people individually, how to sort of stay sane, stay connected, stay, you know, living a, a fulsome and satisfying and thriving life as more and more technology invades the most intimate of our personal interactions. I do think um, it's important to find some sort of balance. Like, I, I think with all technologies, when they first come out, we, we tend to overuse them and abuse them. And then we realize that we're doing that and uh, we look for, you know, opportunities to move away from them. I do think the phone is a real addiction. I, I do think um, this generation of, of, of kids, I don't have kids myself, but just talking with my friends who are parents, a lot of them have made the choice to not allow uh, any media, TV or, or devices. Some have uh, made decisions to allow everything because they're growing up in this world and they need to understand how to, to work with it. And others have found some sort of hybrid. Um, I think if you, if, 
if we see it in, in a, as, a way, as a tool to help us ask questions about the world, to build things, to make things, and not just pure uh, consumption, I think you, it can be quite healthy um, as long as you are finding balance elsewhere. And, and I, I am very worried that there's not a lot of emphasis on finding that balance um, mm. outside of the moment. Right. And we've become so dependent. You go to any restaurant these days and you have, you see couples all the time. Both of them are on their phones and a candle is in the middle of them. And it, it's just, we, we, we've definitely lost a lot of that uh, opportunity for, for real connection. And I, I do think we should build technologies um, to suggest that people uh, look up. Look up. That's an inspiring message. Uh, Jack, I, I know that you're a busy man. We just want to say we appreciate you joining us so much. It's, it was a real pleasure talking to you. And uh, I think a lot of people were going to get something out of this. So thank, thank you, Jack. You. Great to talk thank to you. you. So thank you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's our pleasure. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge this season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty, Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. That's right. 